my name is Ryan. I serve here as one of the pastors and want to welcome you and uh, let you know that we're really grateful uh, that you're here and that you chose to be with us uh, this morning. This morning, right after we're done here in the gathering, uh, we'll have starting point. We have starting point uh, every first Sunday of the month as an opportunity for you, whether you've been, uh, this is your first Sunday or you've been coming for a while, for you to just get uh, a little bit more connected and find out a little bit more about us as a church and how you can get plugged in uh, in some different avenues. And so uh, if, if that's you, if you're new, you've been coming for a little while and want to learn more and want to know how to get connected here, uh, we'll be in the media center uh, just on the other side of the lobby right after the gathering uh, this morning. But if you are new with us, we have been walking through a series in the book of 1 Corinthians. And so if you've got your Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, we have one for you. On that table over there, there's some black hardback ones. If you didn't grab one of those uh, on your way in, feel free to go and grab one of those and keep that. That's our gift to you uh, as a church. We want you to have a copy of God's Word uh, for yourself. But while you're turning there, uh, depending on kind of where you're from, you may or may not have heard of this, but there are a few cities that have the slogan, uh, keep their city weird. And, and there's some debate about whether this got started in Portland, Oregon, or Austin, Texas, but the University of Texas is in Austin, and I hate them with a righteous hatred. Uh, and so we're just going to say that Portland started this. Who cares what Wikipedia says? They've been wrong before, right? But, but they both have this slogan, keep Portland weird, keep Austin weird. If you haven't been to either of those cities, uh, think of Asheville here in North Carolina. Asheville has also picked up this slogan, and apparently they have a saying that if you're too weird for Asheville, uh, you're just too weird, which is, is pretty true. If you've been to Asheville, you know it's a really different kind of city. It really doesn't feel uh, like anywhere else in North Carolina in the same way that Austin doesn't really feel like it belongs uh, with the rest of Texas, because they all have some pretty weird things. Like Austin has a bar where every Saturday you can play bingo with chicken poop. And so there is a chicken uh, who's walking over a board with all these random numbers and whichever number it decides to go number two on, uh, if that's the number that you bought and drew that day, uh, you're the winner. Portland has a voodoo donut shop that you can also get married in. Uh, Asheville has a guy that dresses up like a nun and rides one of those kind of carnival looking bicycles with one of the big wheels all throughout the city. And uh, that's all pretty different, right? And, and it seems that this slogan got started as a way to kind of resist the commercialization of their cities. Uh, these cities are different, and they glory in that. They glory in their weirdness. They don't want to be like everybody else, and they don't want to fit in. Uh, they don't want to be kind of a fit-in-the-box or a cookie-cutter type of city. They're different. They're weird. They know it. They love it. And they want to kind of just own it uh, and glory in their weirdness and keep it that way. Well, in the same way, if I could sum up what I think Paul is trying to get at and what, what he's trying to tell us here this morning in 1 Corinthians 1, I think Paul is telling us to keep Christianity weird. Like, really, I, 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 we really aren't like any other religion, and our gospel message is weird and weak and foolish to so much of the world. And instead of trying to tone that down or change that to make it fit in better or make it more acceptable. I think Paul's really calling us to just glory in the weirdness of it, center on the weirdness of it, and keep Christianity weird. And so let's look at this text and see how to do that together this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll start in verse 18, uh, and we'll read down through the end of the chapter. And so starting in verse 18, the very word of God to us today, it speaks to us like this. 
says, For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The two movements I think we see in this passage, I think Paul tells us first that we have a loser gospel Uh, and then a gospel for losers, a loser gospel and a gospel for losers. Because Paul begins by telling us here that the gospel message, the word of the cross that we preach is foolishness to those who are perishing. Uh, And he backs this up with a quote from Isaiah chapter 29 to show us that this is actually God's design, that God has actually always intended it to be this way, that God has designed it so that he could destroy the wisdom of those that the world would say are wise and show us uh, that you won't come to salvation through your own wisdom, that you have to come through the foolishness of the cross. Uh, When Paul says in verse 20, where's the wise person? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Paul is really pointing to all of the experts of this day and just pointing out the fact that none of them predicted this. Like, no one called this. No one reasoned and figured this out. No one expected this. This came as a total surprise to everyone, the word of the cross and what Jesus did on the cross. Because let's just think for a second about the the craziness of what we're proclaiming in the cross. Uh, You see, the cross really isn't a a part of our society anymore, and and the cross isn't really a scandal uh, to us like it used to be to others, because, you know, we get crosses tattooed on us, we wear crosses as necklaces and, and pieces of jewelry, and, and I think some of the craziness gets lost on us, of that gets lost on us, because even people who aren't followers of Jesus do that, but the, the cross was a torture device. Like, back then in this day, wearing a cross around your neck as a piece of jewelry would be like today, wearing a noose or an electric chair around your neck as a necklace. And so if we're really going to grasp what Paul is getting at here, I think we need to sit for a second and see the scandal of the cross. Because the cross was the most humiliating and degrading way for somebody to die during this time of the New Testament. In fact, crucifixion was so shameful that it was reserved only for the lowest classes of society. 
Like this is the only people that would be crucified. And, and what we see in the Gospels with Jesus is that before Jesus is crucified, he is scourged. He is whipped with an instrument that would have had pieces of bone and metal uh, tied into the straps so that when he was whipped, those would dig into his flesh and then tear the flesh off of his back every time that he was whipped. He had a crown of thorns smashed down on his head. Blood would have been pouring down his face from these thorns digging into his skull. Uh, and then he was hung up on the cross, and the way that you crucified someone was by driving a nail through the nerves in their wrist or their hands, uh, and then their ankles or their feet, and, and, and basically you would hang them up like that on the cross, and with the way that they were hanging on the cross, gravity would kind of take over, and, and so they'd slump down, and you wouldn't be able to breathe because it would be crushing your lungs, so the only way you'd be able to get a breath uh, is by pushing and pulling yourself up on the cross, which would just send radiating pain through your arms uh, and your legs uh, every time you had to get a breath. And so basically, the way you would die is just by uh, hanging there and choking to death over a, a long period of time, sometimes days at a time. Uh, in fact, crucifixion was so painful uh, that we even invented a word to describe the pain, excruciating pain. But, but it wasn't just the pain of the cross that made this message such a scandal. Uh, it was the shame of the cross as well. Because the cross was designed to dehumanize and degrade somebody as much as possible, to let them die like an animal and not like a person. Uh, crucifixions were a public affair. Crosses would have lined the roads on the way into cities and uh, basically, it was a way for Rome to intimidate people and say, hey, this is what's going to happen to you. This is how you're going to end up if you try us. Like, don't do anything to us. And so you would have been stripped naked, just hanging on the cross for everyone passing by to see. And we see this in the Gospels with Jesus. People would walk by, and they'd mock you, and they'd spit on you, and they'd hurl insults at you while you hung there and died in shame. And you'd be hanging there, naked, dying in shame, choking to death on your own blood in front of all to see. Like to crucify someone was to say, you are an absolute loser. You are the scum of society. You deserve to die like an animal and not like a person. And, and when Paul says we preach Christ crucified, Christ is the word for Messiah, for a king. He's saying we are preaching the message of a crucified king, of a king who got crucified. We're, we're saying that we actually worship a king who got crushed on the cross. That, that we actually worship a king who ended his life by being beaten and stripped and mocked and humiliated and executed as a criminal of the state in the most shameful way possible. We're, we're saying that through the humiliating, shameful, excruciating death of Jesus, that that's actually what saves people and transforms their lives. We're, we're saying that the cross, in all of its shame and its scandal, is actually what shows us that Jesus is the true king who's worthy of our lives and our worship and our following. That's a ridiculous message. That, that's a loser gospel. And let me just step back and think for a minute about the weirdness of the whole gospel message that we proclaim. We, we are saying, when we proclaim the gospel, we are saying that there is a God who has created us, that we have rebelled against him, but instead of punishing us for that rebellion, uh, God, like God, not an angel, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, 
takes on our human nature and becomes a man and is born of a virgin. Like she did not have sex, but she did get pregnant and there was Jesus. And he was born not just to a virgin, but to a poor teenage virgin in the backwoods middle of nowhere. That the God of the universe was born not in a palace, but in a barn. That the God of the universe's first bed when he came into this world was not a Tempur-Pedic, it was a feeding trough. Like, he wasn't born in a palace, and he was a baby. Like, God, as a baby, pooped his diaper. He had to wear a diaper. He had to learn how to walk and talk, and he didn't grow up to become royalty either. Jesus spends his whole ministry as a poor, homeless, wandering teacher, and then ends his life by being stripped naked and beaten and crucified as a criminal of the state on the cross. We, when we preach this message, we are saying that God humiliated himself in this way and humiliated himself through this sort of death, but that he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose from the dead to defeat our death and sin, and that if you will turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus and what he's done for you, uh, he will forgive all of your sins and reconcile you back to God forever. Like, that's weird, y'all. Uh, where else do you glory in somebody who got beaten and shamed and executed as a criminal? I mean, in sports, you kind of laugh at people who are fans of teams that lose all of their games, or you feel sorry for them, but you don't join in with them as fans and followers of that team. And the people we as a culture hold out as successful and important and as examples to follow are people who have made something of themselves, who have gotten ahead, who have become a success, who, have, who win, not people who lose and get shamed and mocked and executed. Like, who would look at a king being crucified like this and say, yeah, that's wisdom. That's the way you should do it. That's what I want my God to be like. That's the type of God I want to follow. That's how I want my life to end up. No, no, in the eyes of what the world looks at as successful and important, Jesus is an absolute loser. But what Paul is saying is that what it looks foolish to our eyes is actually the wisdom and the power of God. And because notice again, verse 21 says that in God's wisdom, he made it so that the world could not come to know him through their own wisdom. Instead, they'd have to come through the foolishness of the cross. Like the, the crazy thing is that God uses this loser message of a crucified king to absolutely save and transform people's lives. Like we preach this weird upside down message about how you've rebelled against God and you're a sinner and, and you need a savior and Jesus humiliated himself on the cross to die for your sins and be that savior. And, and, and crazily enough, people are like, okay, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. Where do I sign up? Like that, this message is too weird for anyone other than God to do that. Uh, only God could bring that about and open people's eyes like that, and, and he does that so that the glory would go to him. Like if salvation could come through our own wisdom, if you and I could reason this out and figure it out on our own, then the glory should go to people who are smart enough, who are gifted enough, and who have figured it out. But if salvation comes through the news of a crucified king, then the glory goes to him alone. Because you and I were not smart enough to figure this out on our own. Left to ourselves, we would still think this message is foolish or weak, but he revealed it to us. 
Like God did that. Look at how uh, Paul expands on this again in verses 22 through 24. He says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. He says, Jews demand signs. They were looking for a ruler who could come and overthrow their enemies and establish them as God's kingdom upon the earth. They were looking for someone who could come and crush Rome and set them back up in power again. And the Greeks or the Gentiles were looking for wisdom. I mean, think of this. This is kind of the hotbed of philosophy in this day. They are swimming in Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and Cicero. And so they're looking for something, for a message that will line up with those respectable uh, philosophers of their day about how you get the good life. But did you notice that Paul did not give that to him? He says, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Paul knows that this message of the cross is weak and foolish to many in the world, that it presents a stumbling block and it looks like stupidity, but he doesn't care. He just keeps preaching Christ crucified. And And look, because this gospel message is still so counterintuitive and so upside down to everything else in our world today, I think that these two temptations, the temptations to seek signs or wisdom in place of the foolishness of the cross, uh, is still going to be the temptation that we are going to face today. You and I are going to be faced to, when we're confronted with really the weirdness of the gospel message, to try to tone it down and fit it in and make it look more acceptable uh, to what the world counts as wise and strong in our day. For, for some of us, the temptation will be for us to, to seek signs. Uh, we'll treat Jesus as a means to an end to get to whatever it is that we really want. Uh, we'll think that we can kind of bottle up Jesus' power and use that to get to something other than him. We'll think that Jesus really exists to serve our own desires. Uh, sometimes you hear this in the way we present the gospel or the way we say, hey, you should follow Jesus because if you follow Jesus, like, you won't struggle or suffer as much. Life is going to get better. He'll fix this. He'll improve that. For others of us, uh, the temptation is going to be to seek wisdom. The temptation will be to treat Jesus like a life coach or a guru who has some helpful principles that we can apply to our lives uh, in our quest to continually keep improving ourselves. This is really not where you follow Jesus and submit your life to him as your king. This is much more where you treat him like a guru who has some helpful principles that you can treat as life hacks to kind of optimize your life and continue making your life better for yourself. I think you see this when we present the gospel as, hey, if you follow Jesus, uh, you're going to get that promotion. You're going to be better at your job. He's going to fix this thing in your family. He will, he will give you this. You'll, you'll kind of improve with that. Like Jesus just becomes a means for us to get to the American dream. In both of those, it's still all about us. But in contrast to that, Paul says, yeah, they're seeking signs. They're looking for wisdom but we just keep preaching Christ crucified. Paul does not give them what they want. He continues to center on the weirdness of the gospel message in the face of this temptation. I want to encourage you to do the same. 
to keep Christianity weird, to, to glory in the weirdness of it and center on the weirdness of the cross. Like God humiliated himself for us. He really did. And, and in doing so, he actually showed us what life and reality is all about. Because notice again uh, what Paul says in verse 24 when he says to those who are perishing this message is foolishness but to those who are called to those who are given eyes to see uh, they see that the cross is really the power and the wisdom of God that this is real wisdom that this is true power that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and that the weakness of God is stronger than men you see the cross reveals the way that the world actually works the cross takes what the world looks at as wisdom and power and says that it's garbage. That this cross, this message that we preach that sounds so counterintuitive and upside down, when we preach it rightly, we're actually saying that it's right side up, that this is the way that the world actually works, that, that life is not found in you living for yourself and consuming more and expressing yourself, but in dying to yourself and denying yourself so that you can serve others. That real power is found not in using your strength to get more for yourself, but in using your strength to benefit others more than yourself, to lay your life down for the good of others. That the cross reveals that real wisdom is found not in applying life hacks to make a better life for yourself, but in humbling yourself and following the pattern that Jesus laid out for you in the cross. The cross reveals the humility of Jesus, that he who was rich for our sakes became poor so that through the poverty of his humanity and his cross, we might get to share in the riches of knowing him, and it empowers us to walk in that same humility. Because as we get our eyes on Jesus and we're freshly astounded that God would do this for us, that God would love us like this, that God would humiliate himself to save us, it empowers us to want to be humble and pour our lives out in, in serving and giving to others so that they can flourish. And, but on, on top of that, I think this is also just a helpful way for us to discern what's really wisdom. Because you and I are confronted all day, every day with messages and advice that are presenting themselves as wisdom, presenting themselves as something that's worth following. And so in the midst of all of that, how do you discern what's really true and what's really wisdom? Well, you discern what's true in wisdom by testing it against true wisdom. You, you test every piece of advice and every supposed piece of wisdom against the cross. Like, does this piece of advice look like Christ crucified? Is this going to help me get more of Jesus? Is this going to help me love and serve others better? Or is this just going to help me serve myself? If it doesn't look like Christ crucified, you should probably scrap it. It's not true wisdom. And so Paul, he says, this message that we preach, it's a loser gospel, and we should keep it that way. We should keep Christianity weird and center on the foolishness of the cross because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But not only does Paul say that we have a loser gospel, uh, he also tells us that we have a gospel for losers. Look back again at the text at verse 26 with me. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame 
the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so Paul turns to the Corinthians and he says, hey, not only was our gospel not that impressive in the eyes of the world, neither were most of you. Like, most of you weren't a great success in the eyes of the world. Most of you weren't frequenting the red carpet, but yet God chose you and set his love on you to shame what the world counts as wise and important and powerful and successful and to show that those things mean nothing in the eyes of God. Listen, this is what God does. God takes those that the world looks at as losers and nobodies and idiots, and he takes them and he sets his love on them and saves them and transforms them and accomplishes great work through them. Like, if you don't believe me, if you want proof that God does this, just basically open up to any page of your Bible. And this is one of the major stories of the Bible, that God takes and transforms losers and idiots and people who are unable and uses them mightily in his plans and his purposes. I mean, let me just run through a few. Like, Sarah is supposed to have the child of promise, but she's barren and way past menopause. She's 90 years old when she gives birth to the child that God had promised. Jacob was a cheater and a deceiver. Leah was the ugly, unloved sister compared to her beautiful sister, Rachel. Judah was a moral trash bag. Moses couldn't speak well and had an anger problem. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says that he did not choose the nation of Israel because they were the most powerful of all the nations. He says they were the smallest and the weakest of the nations. Uh, Ehud, he was left-handed and maybe disabled in his right hand. God whittled down Gideon's army to 300 to fight against an army of tens of thousands. Ruth was a poor foreigner and widow and a widower. Uh, David was the runt of his family. His dad didn't even present him as one of the sons that he thought would be anointed king. Peter was a brash hothead who had the worst case of foot and mouth disease known to man. Uh, Jesus gave James and John the nickname Sons of Thunder because they were always ready to throw down on someone and start a fight. Paul was a terrorist and a murderer of Christians. Like, this is what God does. This is all that God does. And verse 29 tells us that God does this so that no human being would boast in the presence of God. Because when God takes and sets his love on and transforms losers and nobodies and accomplishes great work through them, it's clear that the glory for that should not go to them. I mean, imagine you got a bunch of three and four-year-olds together and you had six months to get them ready to play together as an orchestra. And let's say, like, imagine at the end of the six months, uh, they're able to play this kind of beautiful symphony together as an orchestra. If something crazy were like that, to ha like that were to happen, uh, it's very clear that the glory and the credit for that should go to the conductor and not to the three and four-year-olds, right? Like, it's his or her work as a conductor that was making that happen. That's just so unbelievable that it would happen uh, that it's very clear that the three and four-year-olds could never figure that out on their own. The conductor was making that happen. Like, that's what's going on here. 
God takes losers and nobodies and people who don't have ability and he transforms them and uses them so the credit would go to where it rightly belongs so that it would go to him. And listen, this makes the gospel really, really good news because the good news is that God loves losers and that the gospel is for losers. And so if you feel like a loser, if you feel, if you know that you're really not all that impressive, you're actually at an advantage because you know uh, that you're not bringing anything into the table uh, with this whole relationship with Jesus thing, that it's all him who is doing this. Like the Bible is telling us here that you don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be gifted and talented. You don't have to make something of your life. You don't have to be a success. You don't have to be somebody. You can just be a loser who is loved by Jesus. I mean, notice again how much stress Paul puts on this. Three times he says, God chose what is weak. God chose what is foolish. God chose what is low and despised. God chose, God chose, God chose, God did this. Man, if you and I will grasp this truth, it will be so incredibly freeing to us. Because the Bible is teaching us here that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a follower of Jesus because God set his love on you and shows you before the foundations of the world. He picked you out and said, I want her. She's mine. I want him. Give me him. And look, he didn't do this by looking down the halls of time and seeing whether or not we would choose him and then in response choosing us. No, this is a loser gospel, a foolish and weak message left to our own. We would still think this is foolish and stupid, but God revealed this to us. God, in his grace, he opens our eyes and gives us the faith to see and believe that the cross is true wisdom and true power. And look, this brings the ultimate sort of comfort and security because if, if your salvation and God's choice of you is not dependent on anything you did to earn or deserve it, that means there's nothing you could do to jeopardize it or lose it either. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born, or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. There's no reason that God should love us like this. There's no reason that God uh, should choose us, but because he has and because he does, you and I are secure. And keep the bigger context of the letter here in mind. Think back to what we talked about last week. Paul is still addressing division in the church. The doctrine of election is what kills uh, any sort of pride and, and boasting that would lead us to divide from others and mark ourselves out from others here in the church. Because anything that you and I would use as a kind of an identity marker to mark ourselves out and divide from others, all of that gets crushed in the cross. Because anything that you and I would say, uh, God save me because I, like the gospel cuts that sentence off. Anytime you say, God save me because I, God save me because I had faith, because I worked hard, because I went to church, because I did this, because I didn't do that. Anytime you say, God save me because I, you went wrong. Stop. Don't pass go. Do not collect $200. Start back over with that sentence. That sentence needs to say, God saved me because he, 
because he is so gracious, because he is so good, because he set his love on me and chose me from the foundation of the world, even though I did nothing to earn it and deserve it. And look, if that's true, and it is, then, then there's no ground for us to boast with, over anyone here in the church because everyone who has been saved by Jesus has that exact same story. God saved me because he, because he is gracious. The ground is level at the cross. And so now, instead of marking ourselves out from one another and boasting over others, now we're freed up to boast in Jesus together because Jesus has now become our righteousness and wisdom and sanctification and redemption. Like Jesus is the reason that our sins are forgiven. Jesus is the reason we stand right before God. Jesus is the reason that our lives are being transformed to look more like God's. It's all because of him. So we boast in him. We center our lives on him. We keep him number one here in the church. Uh, Dick Lucas was a preacher in England in the 1950s, and uh, he tells the story of when Billy Graham came to Cambridge in 1955 to preach a week-long conference uh, to the students there at Cambridge. And if you don't know who Billy Graham is, that's okay. Billy Graham was basically like America's pastor uh, for most of the 20th century. He was this world-famous evangelist who preached all of these massive conferences to uh, really millions of people. And so in 1955, he gets invited to Cambridge to do this student conference. And uh, if you know anything about Cambridge, you know like it's pretty elite. Like, that's where the best and brightest of the students of England were going during this day. Cambridge and Oxford, those are kind of cream of the crop. And, and so the London press was actually criticizing Billy Graham quite a bit before this conference, talking about, hey, how's this hick fundamentalist from the backwoods and hills of North Carolina going to come and preach to our best and brightest university students? Like, what's he got to say to them? What's he going to be able to say to them? And uh, that criticism really affected Billy Graham quite a bit, and so before he goes to do this conference, uh, he spends a bunch of time kind of uh, doing this crash course on important philosophers and intellectuals, and so he gets there to do this conference, and the first four nights, he's trying to quote all of these philosophers and intellectuals, trying to sound smart and impress all of these elite university students, and uh, the conference really is not going well. Like, people really aren't responding, and so after the fourth night, uh, in, in Billy Graham's words, he decides to kind of scrap all of that and just preach on the blood. He's going to preach on the blood of Christ. He decided, I'm going to keep it simple and preach on the cross. And, and so Dick Lucas was there that night, and he says for 45 minutes, Billy Graham uh, just starts in Genesis, and he basically walks through every blood sacrifice in the Bible, talking about how it all points to Jesus and the cross. For 45 minutes, he kind of just lets it eat and preaches Jesus and the cross, how these students are sinners and they need a Savior, and Jesus has come to die for them and be that Savior. And uh, after preaching, he gives the invitation to respond, and 400 of the 10,000 students come forward that night to give their lives to Jesus. And, and years later, Dick Lucas is talking to a guy who's in ministry now, and uh, they get to talking, and he says, hey, when, when did Christian things begin for you? And the guy says, Cambridge, 1955, when Billy Graham was here. And, and Dick Lucas asked him, what night? And he says, well, the last night. All I remember was walking out of the cathedral that night thinking, wow, Christ really died for me. And that's the power of the cross. So preach the blood. Keep Christianity weird. 
center on the bloody cross of Jesus. Yes, it's going to look like stupidity and weakness to much of the world, but it's the power and wisdom of God, and God will continue to save and transform people's lives through the wisdom of the cross. It's what he loves to do. Let me pray that he would. Jesus, thank you for this message that what we would mock as foolish and weak is actually your wisdom and power. Uh, God, thank you that uh, in your wisdom you chose that we would not come to know you through our own wisdom, that we would have to come through humbling ourselves, realizing we have nothing we bring, and simply to the cross we have to cling. So Jesus, I pray that we would do that. Uh, for those in this room that are followers of Jesus, that we would cling to the cross and center on the weirdness of Christianity and remember that it's from you that we are in Christ Jesus, not from us, that Jesus has become our righteousness, our wisdom, our sanctification, and our redemption, that we stand right before you because of what he has done and not because of anything we have done. And Jesus, as we share this message with others, as we walk this out in our daily lives, would you help us to center on the cross, uh, to not fall to the temptation to uh, play down the weirdness or the, the weakness and foolishness of this message, uh, but to give people the cross, to, to simply preach the cross. God, would you help us to do that? I pray that you would. In your name, amen.